BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Tristan Holmes. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well now, Hythe. Uh, my place of residence is now fully thawed, and the power and heat and internet have been on for up to, uh, let me see, four days straight now. So yeah, I'm doing good. Four days of internet. Uh, so you've been uh, fully caught up in, in uh, Husky's misery and uh, all the exciting news. Uh, since oh, yes. Well, wallowing in every, in every wonderful second of it. You know, it's funny, like, I, I, you know, I have to because of, uh, you know, maintaining the roster database, but I, you know, I've been posting every time, uh, you know, there's been a defection from their roster and the Washington fans are like, oh, oh, you know, oh, you're so obsessed with us. Like every time there's some bad news for our team, you post it. And I'm like, that's not the comeback that you think it is, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we, there's we a lot of have... bad news to post about. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we do that for Oregon, too. It's just, you know, since, since there's the, not uh, so much of it, <laughs> not in the off season, not so far. Knocking yeah. on wood. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of uh, uh, not so much bad news, uh, the women's basketball team, um, which uh, we've sort of written off for dead. Uh <laughs> We we had we we had Adam like write a, a nasty gram about Kelly Kelly Graves and then um, Kelly Graves won his games against Arizona and Arizona State. Um, you covered uh, uh, the Arizona win. Um, it was kind of a it was a it was a real back and forth game. It was kind of a weird game, uh, uh, right? Like the it was in the middle of the ice storm. They decided to close it to the fans. Right. So if you for those of you who didn't get a chance to see it live, if you look up the footage, uh, you know, it looks like it's uh, it looks like they were playing during the pandemic again, mm -hmm. because you've got except that there were very few masks. So you got the teams, you've got the crews. I think you might have had a few uh, uh, a few folks who had special permission, but the general public was not allowed in here. So you didn't get the full home court advantage. But the one thing you can say about this women's team is that they have been better in Eugene than when they've had to go on the road. And this was a back and forth when this is not an Arizona team that compares to a couple of years back where they met uh, Stanford for the national championship game. This is uh, not one of the elite teams in the Pac-12. But, you know, for this Oregon women's team... I mean, Ada Barnes is a good coach, but like mm -hmm. they're... It, uh, yeah, you're you're right. Like, I mean, this is one of the things we talked to Badwater about was that like this was probably going to be a bit of an, a rebuilding year. You know, that it was young team, and and yeah, you know, sort of showed. Mm -hmm. 
And with all that, I mean, first of all, for Oregon women's basketball this season, you take your wins when you get them. And if you win ugly, that's a win. You don't complain too much about it. We're not looking for style points right now. But it was a back and forth game. And at the very end, you know, you talk about how we had that uh, Adam managed to light a fire under, under Graves. Well, they did their best to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. At, at the very end there, but they managed to hold on. And that was the important thing. And it, we've seen a lot of the, of the trends with this team that have continued all season. Uh, it was not their worst ball handling performance, but you know, one, one fantastic because that's something this team struggles with. Shooting was pretty on point. They outshot Arizona. Uh, they were Oregon was 53% from the floor and 45% from the three-point line, and they made 68% of their free throws uh, compared to only 50% for Arizona. But the big thing was Oregon attempted 28 free throws. Arizona yeah. only attempted 10. Yeah, the, it's kind of the story of the game is the free throws. Like both teams... Okay, so first of all, the thing that was really weird was that the watching the game, it felt kind of eerie. And like our 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 friend at AZ Desert Swarm, Kim Doss, wrote up this game too, and she said the same thing in her write-up that you did in yours, which is that like the place felt eerie yeah. and you know for for the lack of fans and even as the visiting team you know like where maybe you might think that like oh well wouldn't the the visiting team get a boost from that because they wouldn't have you know uh the the home fans you know booing and, and jeering them no you know like the, it's that's not how it works like just having humans in the stands you know because the familiarity of it you know is a comfort even though they're booing you it's a comfort mm -hmm. whereas them their absence is so like eerie however having said that like both of these teams shot over 50 percent from the floor and both of these teams shot well over 33 percent from beyond the arc like, you know, Oregon was 45.5%. Arizona was 50%. Yeah. So, like, the, you know, it was great shooting, you know? So it was, like, as eerie as it felt. And, and like, there were there were times when there were missed baskets in this game, and I'm sure you saw it, Kristen, where it was just like, ooh, there was something weird about that shot. It was still the case that, like, on on balance, like, most shots were going in. Yeah, both both teams were were very hot, as you say. The numbers bear that out. But you're right. I mean, there were there were times where you could tell the atmosphere was affecting the players to some extent. It was still a highly competitive game. Both teams were very focused, but you could tell sometimes it's just the silence was just, it was just weird. You know, it's kind of like, kind of like playing in the twilight zone. Yeah. So then where it really felt like the, the sort of eeriness affect them was that both teams were just terrible from the charity stripe. Like yeah. Oregon's 50% from the the charity or uh arizona was was 50 from the charity stripe oregon was uh was 68 from the charity stripe like both of those are those are awful yeah numbers like you know honestly like anything below 75 is completely unacceptable like uh, you know um 
honestly, I, I don't think there's really an excuse to be anything less than a 90% shooter. There's like, it's the same motion. It's the same rim. It's the same basket. Like make your free throws. Like I, you know, make your free throws. Um, I mean, Grace Van Sluten was 90%, you know, uh, uh, yeah, that's it, where she got half her points is she yeah. was taking it to the iron. She was drawing fouls, getting Arizona in foul trouble and then scoring points off it. But look, that's the story of this game. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. that's the, you know, in a game that was the, the final score in this game was 70, 68. And the story of this game it is that, you know, as you said, Arizona goes to the line 10 times, you know, they, they get 10 free throws. Oregon gets 28 right like Oregon gets almost three times as many free throws which look if the situation were reversed Oregon fans would be screaming about like oh the refs you know the the refs the refs the refs like look man I, I watched this I even tried to like you know take off the the, the Oregon hat mm-hmm. you know and re- like no I mean, there are other there are games that I've watched where I'm just like, wow, they're really giving Oregon stuff. Like, I'd be willing to say it if I thought that that was the you know the the refs you know had it in the bag for Oregon. I'm definitely willing to say it if you know, like, like Jesus, that the men's basketball game that they just played against Utah was really <laughs> stupid. Um, well, uh, I think I think Badwater wrote that one up when we talked to him about that on. I'll probably say something, but like, look, man, if I, if I really thought that Oregon was getting, you know, way too many of these foul calls and in Arizona was getting way too few, I, I promise you, I would say it. I don't think that was true. Like we have been saying all year long that one of the big assets of this team that like no one's really appreciating because everybody just wants to dump on Kelly Graves with like you know, Hey man, it's not like Kelly Greaves doesn't deserve, you know, some dumping on him. It's just that like, Hey, let's be accurate with the stuff that you should dump on him for. And let's also be accurate with some of the stuff that he deserves praise for. And, and some of the stuff that he deserves praise for is that this team actually plays pretty good defense without committing fouls. And you saw that in this game, like Oregon only had two players who who got into foul trouble, even in a very competitive game towards the very end. And that was Sophia Bell, who's like their main defensive weapon and Filipina Che, who only had three. And even that, you know, the third one didn't come until the really the very end of the game. Remember, like mm-hmm. um, and she wasn't really even seriously in foul trouble. Meanwhile, Arizona, the entire team was in foul trouble. Like is Mary Martinez got into foul trouble early. And then, you know, when they finally brought her back into the game, she immediately got back into foul trouble. She's one of their key scorers. Right. And so she was limited only six points on the night. Right. Uh, Jada Williams was in foul trouble. Bray Cunningham was in foul trouble. Those are two of their key scorers. Right. Um, I mean, Jada Williams was the, the leading scorer of the night. She was in foul. You know, she was like skirting on, on foul trouble. Like they had six different players players you know with three plus fouls right and, you know that's why Oregon was constantly going to the charity stripe in a game that was decided by two points you know mm-hmm. and- yeah Arizona had to dig deep on their on their bench and frankly they didn't get a lot of production from that so right. not exactly. only is Oregon scoring but they're also taking Arizona's scorers off the court so you know you're getting a right. you're getting offense and defense by drawing those fouls yeah i mean i was like basketball is kind of a 
you know, I, I don't know why it took basketball coaches so long to figure out that, you know, the, the meta of, you know, this game in which like you have to put, you have to go to the iron in order to draw fouls because drawing fouls gets you like three times as much as just the point value um, because of, you know, what it does for, for uh, affecting your opponent's roster. But like, yes, exactly. You know, uh, uh, what's that, you know, tw- what, what's 24 plus 29? Uh, uh, let's uh, see, uh, 53. 53 you know so so arizona had to play 53 minutes worth of bench players that contributed three points Mm -hmm. because they had because they had so many uh uh, uh, players in foul trouble mm -hmm. like that's yep that's yeah that's why oregon won by two points against (laughs) frankly a team that was probably even though like i uh, you know we we just finished saying arizona's probably you know not a great team this year they're still probably a better team than oregon because of the problems that oregon has but oregon won for that reason they were that gave them control of the game i mean you talk about game control in certain other sports especially football how do you control a game in basketball you you force the other team to do things they don't want to do and Mm -hmm. you do that by getting them in foul trouble Mm -hmm. and we we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that their uh oregon's bench we haven't said this a lot uh over the course of the season actually outproduced arizona's by a pretty significant margin well look they only produced three points so it'd be hard not to do that but <laughs> yeah enough. like sammy wagner who i like i who, uh, the only other times i pretty much ever said sammy wagner's name in any of these podcasts was to say like sammy wagner goose egg but in this game you know she goes two for two from beyond the arc uh uh and, and produces you know eight points you know and single-handedly outscores uh arizona's bench right mm-hmm. uh but priscilla williams uh chips in two points and sarah rhombus you know chips in five points including three from the charity strike because she right. was going to the iron and getting fouled you know hey all right yeah we'll see if any of that is sustainable in as uh as this team keeps going but on on a on a weird uh on you know a uh, a cold spooky night in Eugene, Oregon, it was enough. Mm. I mean, you know, Kennedy Basham still can't make a bucket. Yeah, um, but like Chance Gray, three for five from beyond the arc. You know, uh, uh, you know, so that's good. Although, like, you know, she's not making her jumpers. You know, inside. Uh, Sophia Bell contributed eight points, more than I'm used to seeing from her. Um especially given that she was in foul trouble. Uh, you know, Filipina Che continues to do work, you know, thir- 13 points on the night, you know, five free throws, which, you know, may- <laughs> I was like when she makes free throws, she's so tall. Uh, you know, 12 rebounds, two assists. Mm-hmm. Um, she turned the ball over seven times, but, uh, you know, Grace Van Sluten, 19 points, right? Including nine, m- nine of 10 from the charity stripe, you know like yeah yeah grace van sluten has been the the one really consistent producer for this for this team all year uh filipina che of course she she gets her points as well but her her primary uh contributions have often come in rebounding so we got another double double but you know if if grace van sluten has an off night then oregon is just toast well yeah but i mean it is sort of like this game is just like 
I mean, whether they win or lose, we wind up saying sort of the same thing about this team every every week, which is like, look, they play really good defense without fouling. Uh, they get great production out of Grace Van Sluten. Filipina Che is doing her job. You know, Chance Gray, you know, will sink some three-pointers. You know, Sophia Bell will do some defensive work. Uh, if they could just get a couple other players who would score a basket, right? If the, if yeah. Kennedy Basham could just score a flipping basket, if some of the, you know, if they could just get some production from Sophia Bell, if Chance Gray could just be more consistent, if some of the bench players could just sink a bucket, if they could just, you know, be, you know, nominal, from the charity stripe, you know, basic basketball, right? Like I'm not asking for the world. I'm asking for like basic, you know, offensive production, right? Like basic, you know, uh, free throw production, basic, you know, uh, production from more than just, you know, two and a half players, you know, basic, you know, bench production, like that's it. That, you know, that's all, the, you know, like it's, it's not like this team's like a million miles away from being competitive. They, they have everything that they need except for, a, you know, a couple, the, the couple extra players, you know, being scorers that need to be scorers. And that, that Tristan, is Tristan, do you think I'm off base? Like, do, do, I, am Not I... at all. I mean, I, I enjoy watching this uh, team uh, just learning more about uh, basketball and especially women's basketball, being a writer here. And uh, I'm always happy to come on whenever I, I cover one of their matches. But it does feel like we're a bit of a broken record here because yeah. we're not seeing – it, it's certainly a consistent team in a lot of ways, just not always in the ways we would prefer to see. The other thing about this game, uh, like, I don't know, like when I was watching them play Oregon State a couple of weeks ago, they look like zombies out on the floor. Oh, yeah, that was very noticeable light in that game. Like it was, it was crazy, you know. And then when I was watching this game in which I sort of expected them to look like zombies because they were playing in a tomb. Like they didn't like they look pretty athletic, you know, like it just looked like crisper, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I, just I do. Like there's a lot more like hustle on the floor. Like, I sort of hate saying words like hustle because it sounds yeah. like such like, an you know, the, the, the old gray hair, you know, like, let's see some more hustle out there, you yeah. know, kind of thing to say. But like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, it, it was definitely noticeable, especially comparing, uh, that specific game it it just felt like uh there was a lot more movement and i don't know if they were actually moving faster they don't wear gps trackers mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let us have access to that data even if they did but mm -hmm. it certainly seemed like the team just as a whole was flowing and moving around the court a lot more and i'm 
I'm not I mean, sure exactly what to attribute that to. Why that would be such an I know it would be. It's uh, it's another. one of the things I I like. I I hesitate to say this because it's like difficult. I mean, it could actually be quantified if we had GPS trackers. Yeah. You're right, but we don't, and so I can't quantify it. And I hate saying anything that I can't quantify because it's such a like grumpy sports writer thing to say. But man, I just felt like I was seeing so much more energy you know, out of them, like the, you know, like j- just like, it seemed like there was just one more extra pass, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, compared to some of the, like just dead ass perform, like especially that Oregon state game was just like painful to watch. Cause it was so dead ass, you know? And like, or that, I mean, the UCLA game, I understood why, cause it's just like, you're going to get killed against that team and chance yeah. is out. Like I, I understood it, but like, I don't know, man. Like this just didn't seem dead ass. Like it just seemed like they were competing. I was like, hey, and they competed down to the final whistle. Like I was actually like pretty encouraging game. Um, like I wish they had more weapons than they do. It's why it's frustrating, really. You know, because it's like I I don't actually think I'm I'm looking at a bad team. I think I'm actually looking at a team that's 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 actually like. All, all, like I think I'm actually looking at a team that's like 75% of the way to like being a, a, an actually pretty good team it's just that the last 25% is like impossible it, like it's, a, it's an impossible bridge because that bridge would be made up of like turn turn people into consistent scorers who are effectively putting up goose eggs every night and like that ain't gonna happen so like it's a bridge too far but yeah in in some ways it would be like more comforting if it was just a clown show out there you know like because then we could kind of like laugh along with it but like but it's it's like tantalizing you know what i mean yeah you can you can see that there is there's a lot of potential with with this team but they are a couple of players away specifically a point guard as we pointed well, out. well yeah or, definitely or, uh, but i don't think it's just a point guard though i mean like they are definitely missing that but it's like but it's more than that like they, they need like i mean i I'm, I'm not gonna specifically point at like a particular player or multiple players and say you get off this team and be replaced but like there are multiple players on this team who can't make a bucket. Yeah. And it's sort of like, look, if this were football, um, it's my job as the film reviewer for this site to write, like, you know, look, if I were, if this were football and I were looking at at any other team and and those non, and these were non-productive bench warmer players and the coach kept them around uh, and this were an off-season review, I would be ridiculing that coach for complacency and sentimentality, for 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 wasting scholarships on on non-productive bench warmers. Um, and, and so, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the off-season when the when Graves and his coaching staff do. Uh, try to look at at this season as a whole and see what kind of changes they make and it'll be really interesting to see if they're aggressive making any roster moves to try and try and shore up some of these weak areas and get more 
more point production on the floor. I mean, I, I think the logic of processing out players and and I also think the, like the logic of NIL and the transfer portal, like those things are exclusive to football. No. I mean, hell, volleyball's using it. Go, go ask Coach Ulmer, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, hell, there's a whole story in the Oregonian volleyball side about a, a player who, you know, essentially Ulmer was forcing out the door because she was non-productive and she was like what's going on just because i can't play or produce for the team you're forcing me out the door and it's like yeah what did you think was going on here like Mm -hmm. um yeah what did y'all think was going on here yeah i suppose that there was a time with with different you know player movement rules where maybe you could make the argument that it was a different kind of relationship, but with, with the opportunity for players to move and find playing time in other programs, I mean, what, honestly, whether you like it or not, that's what winning programs do is yeah. when you have a player that is not producing to the level you need them to, to contribute, you process them out and you hope it's done respectfully. Obviously sure. there are times when it gets abused, but you hope it's done respectively. But if you want to win, then uh, sometimes you don't just add positives. You also subtract negatives. I, I don't think there's anything at all in that is intrinsically disrespectful about it. In fact, in, mm-hmm. I think that intrinsically at its core, it's the most respectful thing in the world is to be honest uh, with, you know, assessing someone's, you know, capabilities and saying, look, you're, you're not going to see, you know, court time or field time or, or whatever it is, uh, you know, with us and, and you're more likely to see, you know, floor time at this other level. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like, you know, and there's a way to do that respectfully, um, and honestly. And, and I think that taking the opposite attitude, uh, you know, that like, oh, no, you're you're doing a kindness to to a player by keeping them around and, and effectively like lying to them. Like, I don't think that's doing anybody a kindness. I think that's doing them a cruelty. So, yeah, but we're not going to reach that point till the end of the season. So, you know, you're in it for at most like nail biting games like this Arizona one. Um, <laughs> for probably the rest of the season. See how many more of these we get. All right. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk some tennis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So uh, after taking a break, um, uh, over the holidays, I guess, uh, the tennis teams uh, returned to action. Uh, the Both the men's and the women's teams uh, hosted uh, a whole bunch of different schools uh, in Eugene. Um, you covered uh, all of it uh, uh, for the, the January um, uh, matches uh, in Eugene. Uh, you want to start on the men, men's side or the women's side? 
Uh, let's start with the women's side, just because, uh, frankly, there's a lot more on the men's side, simply because they played a lot more matches. Uh, women's side, there was there was one team match, uh, Oregon welcomed Portland State, who they had also played in the fall. And I have learned through writing these articles, both in the fall and the spring, that in the fall, the competition is measured as uh, individual players and as pairs in doubles play. So when Oregon played Portland State in the fall, the results were recorded for individual players and for the pairs. This was a team match, and I hadn't been familiar with the scoring system for tennis, so this was something else I learned, and I tried to put this in the article for anyone who was unfamiliar. But there are, each team bring brought six players to this to this team match, and there were seven points available. They started by playing doubles matches, uh, three pairs each, and whoever won at least. So, but not mixed doubles, right? It's no, not mixed doubles, not mixed doubles. It it it's same gender doubles, right? Yeah, same gender doubles. So, uh, two from the women's team for Oregon versus two from the women's team for Portland State, and there's three different matches for a total of six players from each team. Right. So we it's. So it's six singles matches and then three doubles matches because mm -hmm. that's how you get three doubles matches. Yeah, because three times two is equal to six. Very good. There you go. Uh, we're getting a lot of good basic arithmetic review on mm -hmm. this podcast tonight. I'm yep. all for this. Uh, and the, the way the scoring works in these team matches is that every singles matches is worth a point to that team. So there are six points uh, available in singles play doubles is worth only a single point as a group so if you win the majority of the doubles matches that gets you essentially the tiebreaker so if you're if you go three and three against the opposing team in singles it doubles that decides it mm -hmm. uh oregon was able to take out uh portland state seven nothing in the team score they won the doubles two matches uh two pairs one for oregon one pair one for portland state so oregon got that point and then in singles play oregon swept the vikings uh in fact uh in i, I think the vikes only took like two two sets you know of it it was you know, it, uh, it, it was pretty solid domination. You're correct. In uh, in singles play, like the Vikings Lusher was two and zero. Geisler was two and zero. Martinez Morale was two and zero. Young was two and zero. Um, it was only uh, uh, Joe Yi Chan uh, who needed uh, uh, three sets to dispatch her opponent, and uh, Olivia Simons needed two, two th three sets to dispatch her opponent. But but both of them did. You know, mm -hmm. like. Uh, uh, so yeah, they took all six, uh, took all six. The really impressive performance, uh, on the single side for Oregon was Karen Young. She never even lost the game. Yeah. Smoked her just completely six nil, six Perkins. nil. Yeah. And I do remember she came on pretty strong at the end of the fall. So it'll be interesting to see what, what she's able to produce in team play. And actually, for this women's team in the fall, the uh, the doubles team of Lucher and Martinez Morale was the uh, was the only ranked entrant they had in some of the postseason tournaments. And as a pair, they also smoked their opponents six nil yeah. in their doubles match. So some pretty strong showings here. Now, obviously, Portland State isn't who they're going to be measuring themselves against as the season goes on, but a very strong start on the women's side. 
Uh, yeah, no, uh, really uh, excellent performance. Okay, let's switch over and talk about the men. Uh, they played uh, four different uh, opponents. They played, let's see, Eastern Washington, uh, uh, Purdue, uh, who else? Pacific and Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. All four of those teams were scheduled to come down to Eugene. Uh, the Eastern Washington match had to be canceled because of the oh. weather. So right. that that was just called a called a nil nil no no match. So they had four scheduled. They were able to fit in three. Purdue came in uh, Friday night. This is where the drama was for the whole weekend for Oregon tennis was this match right here. Oregon versus future Big Ten rival Purdue. Uh, maybe this is the start of something. Uh, so the format of this match for the men was the same as for the women. Each team brings six competitors. They play as a part of a doubles pair and then six singles matches. Uh, Oregon took the took the doubles. Interestingly, throughout the weekend for the men, if a point was decided, an outcome was already decided, they would leave matches unfinished, I guess, just to save stamina for everyone who had to play later. So Oregon actually took the doubles matches to nothing. Once they won the first two, they just left the third match unfinished. They called it because mm-hmm. Oregon had taken the doubles point. Because it, Yeah, it didn't matter. They had the doubles point secured. Which was relevant because <laughs> which was very relevant because the final team scores were four to three. They split the singles matches with with Purdue three to three. So that doubles point is what won them the match. And not inter- only that, but in, in the singles, it, it was actually it was all uh, clean sweeps in five of the six of them. Uh, Van de Castile, uh, you know, t- two and zero. Oh. Um, uh, 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 for Oregon, uh, Brazil, uh, 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 two to one uh, for Oregon. Loom Common, uh, two two and zero oh for Oregon. But Purdue, uh, uh, beat uh, Sierney, uh, uh, two to zero, and um, and, and uh, Vanderstappen got beat, uh, 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 two to zero, and Burton got beat two to zero. So you know, it, it was. You know, Purdue had three points. Oregon had two points. Uh, so it came down to the 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 Brazil uh, uh, versus Extrand match, which went to the third set. And Brazil, you know, won it in the third set, which meant that they tied it, you know, three to three in the singles and the doubles you know, tiebreaker is what, you know, won the whole thing for Oregon. So it was like, woo. <laughs> yeah like it, you couldn't have been closer <laughs> like, no this this was as dramatic a finish as you could have with the last uh singles match to finish being the only one that went into a third set so everyone's eyes were on it because that was where the outcome yeah was they were be all decided. done they like everybody was watching this this last singles match because the you know if purdue took it then purdue would just have clean one they would have gone four to well, they would have gone four to two and it wouldn't they would have won four to three. Right. Like the, mm-hmm. their four singles points versus Oregon's two singles point plus the doubles point. But they lost. Right. Because Brazil, you know, won that one. So it was three to three in the singles. And then Oregon has the tiebreakers and the doubles. So. Yippee, go Ducks. Mm-hmm. 
Go Ducks indeed. And uh, neither of these teams came in ranked. The ITA does do a, a top 25, but this is, you know, this is a Big Ten opponent. It was the first match of the year. It was a dramatic finish, and it was a Ducks victory at home. Can't do much better than that. Yeah. Uh, pretty thrilling. The other two um, opponents that the men's played, uh, 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 a men's team played, were, were looked like um, uh, pretty overmatched, though. Uh, Pacific and uh, Seattle looked like Oregon just like uh, completely swept them. In fact, the 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 Pacific match they, they didn't even finish like half of the uh, the matches. No, that was that was the first of two team matches that Oregon had on Sunday. So once Oregon was up to four points because they they took the doubles again, two to one, and then Oregon won the first three singles matches, and then they just called it because yeah, because it's like, well, this is over. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's mathematically impossible for Pacific to to win at that point. Um, and not only did Oregon win the first three, you know, singles, but they swept them. Um, you know, like Pacific hardly scored a, you know, scored uh, scored a point. Um, uh, Vandick Steele, you know, who who we talked about in the fall as as just you know as a pretty dominant player was like, I mean, you know, his opponent could barely touch him. Um, uh, but you know, Ray Lowe and Len Luke Luke Common, um, you know, also played you know excellently. And then they played Seattle, which they did finish. You know, it's just that you know Oregon killed them. You know, like the they took every single one of the the singles uh, matches and they got the doubles point as well. Uh, um, uh, in, you know, well, two to zero, they, they didn't finish the third match because right. Oregon won two to zero. Yeah. yeah so the, the Seattle match, they decided to play out the singles matches since it was the last events of the day, but it was, it was essentially the same kind of clean sweep that we saw the women do to Portland state uh, in the, in the singles, it was straight sets for all except one match. Uh, Vanderstappen uh, needed a third set to, to win his match, but took it in the third. Uh, yeah. You know, and again, it was, yeah, a pr pretty clean kill. Um, you know, which is, you know, the, you know, C Seattle's the lower division, you know, opponent, but like, nonetheless, like it's what you expect to see, like it's strong open to the, to the winner, uh, uh, portion of the, the men's tennis season. And they, you know, they went out and did what they're expected to do. So good for them. Um, uh, uh, you know, very strong start. It, like any other standouts, uh, from, uh, from, from the early part of the competition for you? Uh, early part of the comp competition, uh, I think I think we hit them all. I definitely wanted to call attention to Karen Young. She bears watching. I'm very interested to see what Vanderstappen does in team competition. As uh, since he he actually managed to make the uh, he won the super regional in the West in the fall, which was mm -hmm. very very impressive as an individual performer. Uh, and then we've got more tennis coming up. Uh, the men are going to go to the uh, ITA kickoff. I'm not sure why it's called a kickoff when you don't <laughs> ball in tennis, but that's going to be in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, their opponent wasn't listed yet when the article went up, so I'm curious to see who they'll find there. Uh, the women are going to face a stiff increase in competition. They have to go to number one in the country, North Carolina, in in the Tar Heel state. So very curious to see yeah, how they handle Apple that Hill. challenge. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So they they don't get to be, you know play side by side in Eugene. They're they're you the both teams are going east, but the men are going to Columbus and the women are going to Chapel Hill. Um, and that's uh well that's next week. Uh, the the men get started on Friday and the women get start, started on Saturday. All right, so we'll uh, uh, we'll be covering that uh, uh, well, well when it's wrapped up uh, on Addicted to Quack. Uh, okay, let's take a break. Uh, we come back, we'll talk some football. So, Tristan, in your uh, capacity as the film reviewer intern, um, <laughs> although you're, you do get paid uh, beans, yes. as we all do, but yes. Uh, so the, the the project that I assigned you to begin the off season was to uh, take all the um, the 2023 Oregon Ducks uh, football garbage time film, um, of which Oregon produced quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe what what did we figure out? Eleven out of the fourteen games they put into garbage time, either the entire second half or the entire or basically the entire fourth quarter was garbage time so that you know works out to what it you know that that worked out to something like 44 quarters or some crazy thing like that or something like that yeah where the uh we were in non-representative play due to how lopsided the score was yeah uh, you know, so yeah, twenty something quarters of 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 garbage time film, which of course I, other than as a you know on Saturday with a beer in my hand, you know, uh, you, you know, watching it live, you know, had never watched because you know when when then doing my film review, like as soon as it hits garbage time, I'm just I turn it off, like I, I got work to do, mm-hmm. you know, so like I ship that film over to you. Uh, and I was like, oh, you, you know, chart this, and uh, and and I am interested to see what you come. You're you're going to be writing that up next week, um, but this is, so we're going to talk about it a little bit now as a bit of a sneak preview for that article. What'd you come up with? Anything interesting? Well, the first thing I noticed in going through the footage is that for analysis purposes, the game may have been in garbage time, but coaches are a bit more conservative about when they decide to pull their starters. So for instance, in the, in the Oregon state game, even though that was in garbage time, essentially after the first couple of drives of the fourth quarter, I I used hardly any of that footage for this particular project because we saw Bo Nix play that entire game. And the first thing I noticed going through this is the first starter who gets pulled is of course your starting quarterback. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. That's the person you want to protect most. Now, I would have had a lot more footage to go through uh, if the snap, the first few drives with his backup, Ty Thompson, this past year, because normally what would happen is Knicks would get pulled. Thompson would go in with the starters, sometimes also without Troy Franklin, the number one wide receiver. But normally there was a drive where Thompson gets to practice with the starters. Okay, that makes perfect sense. If Thompson's going to have to go in and play meaningful minutes, you want him to have some snaps with the starters at some point. Sure. Right. But we are so now in some chemistry, you know, build up some rapport with the starting group, like just in case, God forbid, anything had happened to Bo Nix, you know, that that Thompson would have some familiarity playing with the ones. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, 
you know, I applaud the strategy coming from the coach's side, but from our perspective, for the purposes of this project, in reviewing the Garbage Time film, we're not going to run this uh, in terms of, you know, looking for too many patterns because it's non-representative play, but what it can help us illustrate is for developmental players players who haven't been in the program that long and are still uh, learning their fundamentals at the Div 1 level and are going through the uh, strength and conditioning and rounding into full shape, we can try and sort of, you know, peek into next season and say, okay, who might we see have, uh, have a bigger role next year? based on what we're seeing here and also who might we not be seeing too much of now of well course, and the- then also on addicted to quack we haven't really written about like because oh. you know the person who'd be writing about them is me mm-hmm. and i wouldn't have been writing about them if you know if the only time we'd really been seeing those guys is garbage time and i turn off the film when it's garbage <laughs> time that means that addicted to quack readers wouldn't be you know you know be exposed to any you know information about them so sort of like the the point of this project is to is to take those players and their their film and bring it to light now you know the folks who've transferred out like ty thompson right you know no real reason to put a spotlight on you know we're not doing this for totally academic reasons we're doing it for you know for for let let's see what these returning guys you know might be able to contribute or in the alternate hey there maybe there's a position in which like hey we didn't see anybody else at this position maybe that informs some of these offseason talent acquisition decisions that the coaching staff is making you know um but you know either way like you know reviewing this garbage time film is about like let's take a look at guys who otherwise we wouldn't have seen and or, you know, why didn't, why wasn't there anybody else there? Mm-hmm. And even in the preliminary stages, uh, as we're recording this podcast on a Tuesday night, I have actually uh, take it, taken notes and done the, uh, our smiley face, frowny face uh, grading on all the garbage time plays where I spotted developmental players on the field. Uh, I'm still going to go through that and, you know, synthesize it into an article, but there's already definitely uh, a number of things that stand out. Uh, one, well, you identified what, like, like 24 of them or so uh, of guys I who think... are, they're returning players. So like, mm-hmm. well, for, the list is a lot longer if you included everybody who is like a developmental player in the sense of like, they weren't really getting meaningful reps, uh, you know, prior to garbage time. Um, but they were getting a significant number of garbage time reps, but then subtract the number of people who then, you know, transferred out, you know, at the end of the year, but you're still left with like 18, you know, scholarship dudes, uh, you know, to look at it's, you know, it's the same. Now, a lot of those guys are like linemen, you know, and, and so you're probably going to be able to like combine those guys together into, you know, let's let's look at all the the 
like the entire backup offensive line at once, right? Sure, um, that's definitely the plan. <laughs> but on the other hand, like like for example, Austin Novosad, the 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 quarterback, you know, you probably need to look at him in isolation, you know. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of players that I'll definitely be looking at in isolation. Novosad certainly, who this season played most of the year as third string. So we didn't get nearly as much footage of him as we would have gotten of Thompson, but especially with the Fiesta bowl going into garbage time in the second half, we, we got enough that we can do a cut up and see uh, some of the things he brings to the table and some of the things that he needs to work on. Uh, Jaden Lamar, the running back, saw saw a significant number of snaps. He's a young running back who's returning and, I would say at this point, the staff are probably hoping he can play his way into the rotation this fall because coming into this season, Oregon, I think, really wanted more of a three-back rotation with Irving, uh, Whittington, and James. But then Whittington got – he wasn't just hurt for a couple of games. He was out for the season after four games, and they didn't feel like – well, like even if Lamar. you were, like, I don't know anything yeah. about this, but he, like, th- you know, four is a magic number, you know, mm-hmm. right? Like, even if he were capable of coming back, they probably were like, Nana, just shut it down. And that way you can have a red shirt. Yeah. Yeah, that I, I would suspect that that might have been a conversation that took place. We've also seen some transfers coming in. They won't be addressed in, in this project. That's that's another article. Uh but I think Lamar, based on what I've seen, there's potential there. And again, we're we're not charting snaps against the opposing team's starters when the opposing coaching staff is running running their primary game plan. Right. So all of this has to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, but definitely. I saw some the good things. The whole point of garbage time is that like, or th- is that like no one's giving you you or at least you cannot assume that both teams are giving a hundred percent the game has been decided and so you can't like really put this data into you know the, the statistical regression and say ah i'm getting great data here the most you can get is like you know this is suggestive of what this guy's like capabilities are or maybe like how he evolves over time you know like you're if you see a guy in garbage time at the beginning of the year and then you see a guy in garbage time at the end of the year and you can do sort of like a little bit of comparison to say like oh he's he's matured actually a little bit in these like 13 weeks worth of practices most definitely and i think a great example of that is uh the backup who became the starting center in the bowl game, number 72, Lalo Uli. If you go back to and, and watch the Portland State tape, the, once uh, Powers Johnson is out of the game, there are snaps, you know, just spraying all over the backfield. Yeah. But when we when we saw Lalo Uli in the Fiesta Bowl, that was not a significant concern. And yeah, no, his nothing... snaps were, were, were great. So that is definitely an evolution. And that indicates that he... I would suspect he's probably the starting center going into next year. We don't know I, that. I would, for sure. ex- I would expect that too. Yeah. But that's the sort of evolution you can find with, with some of, with, some I'm of really that. interested. The, the offensive lineman that I'm most interested in, in you taking a look at is Davey Uli mm. because, um, you know, the, the guy did get significant number of, well, I mean, he got a, a decent number of, 
of meaningful reps. You know, he was actually like the seventh offensive lineman in, um, uh, for, for meaningful reps. Uh, like he was the guy who came in, you know, in the Fiesta Bowl when Jackson Powers Johnson was sitting out the entire thing for NFL prep in on the very first snap of the game for Oregon, Marcus Harper got injured. The guy that they put in was Davey Uli, um, for him. And he played the entire first drive for, for Oregon. And like, that's just an example of like, he was their seventh dude. And so like lots of people have been speculating, okay, so, you know, so Oregon has to replace Steven Jones and they, and they have to replace, you know, Jackson Powers Johnson. So everybody, like you just said, you know, Iapani Lalaulu, um, you know, is probably just going to be their starting center, but who's going to replace Steven Jones? Well, Oregon's been taking all these transfer offensive linemen, right? You know, um, junior Angelau from Texas, uh, uh, um, Nishad Struther from East Carolina, uh, uh, Bedford from Indiana, this, this, you know, last transfer cycle. So everybody's been like, oh, it'll probably be one of these transfers, you know, that they've taken. And I'm sort of like, why are you writing off Dave Uli? You know, like he's yeah. a four star. He was their seventh man this year. You know, uh, he got a, you know, he got a, a, a good chunk of meaningful reps and a substantial number of garbage time reps. Hey, I wonder what the interns got to say about him. So, mm-hmm. hey, Tristan, <laughs> what do you think <laughs> about Dave Uli? Well, I can tell you he was not one of the numbers I remember having to put in a frowny face column as often as as some others. Uh, mm-hmm. I won't call them out by name here. I want to make sure that I uh, I actually go through and am, am doing factual data of mistakes I'm making. But I would say he is definitely in the running for a lineman that could develop into being in the rotation. Now, I haven't done film review of the transfers. That's something you're going to be taking a look at down the line uh at some point and and then we'll see what happens in the spring but i would not be surprised if Iuli ended up being the sixth or the seventh man or possibly even the starting guard because there's a guard that has to be replaced i, I would actually put odds on I, I, if i had to put down a marker right now between the four guys that i've mentioned Iuli, angelau struther and bedford i think i would bet on Iuli. Mm-hmm. now part of that is like just uh, like maybe that's sort of hopeful because like all of my research has indicated that homegrown linemen are preferable to transfer linemen and he's the homegrown. Um, but yeah. Um, another one that I wanted to ask you about if you have some, pr- some preliminary thoughts uh, is um, is Roberts, the uh, Ben Roberts, the, the, the nose tackle. Um, mm. we, we haven't really seen him. That's that's not unusual, given that Oregon was pretty deep, you know, in, in interior defensive line. Um, but they're not going to be, you know, that they, they're going to, you know, Taki Kamani's done. Casey Rogers done. Popo Amavai is done. Um, uh, we didn't really see Ben Roberts, you know, outside of garbage time. Would you you saw him in garbage time? What you think of him? I didn't get as many snaps with some of the backup defensive linemen simply because of that depth that that you just that you've just mentioned. Even even in so garbage were, were time, they playing the starters. starters pretty deep into garbage I, time? Then they were play they were rotating in the starters and mixing them with developmental players well into garbage time. In fact, I believe mm-hmm. it was the last defensive snap of the Stanford game. I saw Dorless in there and 
Really? Yeah, and I was thinking, what what the heck is he doing in there? I mean, I mean, there's potentially something to infer from that, you know. There, there absolutely is, and especially on the offensive and defensive line at the college level, it sometimes takes players a year or two to get the strength and the weight. Also true, but but Roberts was a redshirt freshman this year, you know, mm-hmm. like he, you know, this wasn't his true freshman season, you know. That's interesting. Yeah, I do. I do have Roberts on my tally sheet, and uh, and I've highlighted a video clip of him, so I'll be able to go back and consult my notes and and see what more we see from him. The of the interior defensive lineman, I think the one I remember seeing noticing most was actually probably Washington. And oh, I'm not well, sure. I'm excited to see that because he's a true freshman, and boy, mm-hmm. does he have like. Oh my God, his body is just like the the ideal body type for a four eye in mm-hmm. uh, the mid defensive structure. It's like if you, I, like if I were doing a character creator in a video game, you know, and and got to design, you know, the perfect. I would just it would just pop out Amari Washington. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah, he's in, he's in the smiley face column quite a bit. So oh, we'll, really? Yeah, oh, we'll we'll be able to talk about him. I mean, it's a different position than Ben Roberts' position, mm-hmm. right? Ben, ben yeah. Roberts is a nose tackle, so he's you know going to be a little a little shorter, a little stouter. Mm-hmm. You know, Washington's you know yeah, it's a different frame because it's a four eye position. Um, how about the how about the defensive backfield? Um, you know that was it was a remarkable thing to me that Oregon in the safety position was you know once Brian Addison essentially took himself out of the equation, Oregon was basically only playing during meaningful reps three safeties the entire every single snap. You know, and not and we're not rotating them with anybody else. We're not switching them around positions. They lost all of their positional flexibility. It was always, you know, Taishing Johnson was always in the nickel spot. Steve Stevens always in the free safety spot. Uh, Evan Williams was always in the boundary safety spot. Every single snap. And uh, did did that. And so I was curious, like, did they have any playable defensive backs in garbage time? When did we start seeing garbage time defensive backs? What what was the story there? I would say we actually sometimes started seeing garbage time defensive backs a little bit earlier than I would notice uh, developmental D linemen. Mm -hmm. linebacker and defensive back they'd start rotating in players lower in on the depth chart a little bit before before they started doing it up front in terms of safeties which has been kind of a bugaboo position for Oregon for quite some time and it certainly was this year the person who most frequently showed up on the film transferred out that was number 21 more the only other safety I have on my talent Martin, I beg your pardon. Yes. Uh, Martin, I was I sorry, I was looking at the wrong line There's on a, my reference sheet here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he's a linebacker. Yeah. He's a linebacker, yes. No, Martin, number 21. Uh he showed up in the most film clips that I found. Uh the only other safety that I found film clips that uh really highlighted them contributing to the play was Turner. There are a couple That's of interesting. other interesting Tyler Turner, number 19, the true. Yeah, number 19, Tyler Turner. That's interesting. So uh, you didn't really see. So then let me, you know, Damon David, uh, who'd been around for a little while and transferred out. You didn't really see him. 
Uh, I did not see David. Okay, this is. I apologize. This was a, a bugaboo when I was making the chart because there was a David and a Davis. Was David right. number twelve or number fifteen? David is number twelve and a safety. Davis yeah. is fifteen and a cornerback and a true freshman. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't see fifteen because number one, he's a true freshman. Number two, he's a cornerback and he's like. Of course you didn't see Oregon yeah. was the cup runneth over at cornerback. At corner, yeah. So, no, I didn't see Davis. I did see David. I didn't see him as often as Martin, but he did show up in a couple of clips. And you didn't – and what about number 14, Terrell? I, I had seen, uh, like, some reports that he might have been injured, and that's why we didn't really see him. It, it was that – he didn't show up in any clips where I had him highlighted for either good or ill. So mm -hmm. it's possible that either uh, he just wasn't out there or uh, if we ch if we check pro football focus, he might have gotten some special team snaps. That's something we could look into. But suffice it to say, he's not going to be in, in the cut up. When and I then the other article. and then the other true freshman safety, Cody DeCambra, didn't see him. I didn't see him either. So that's that's interesting. I mean, that's basically everybody that they had at the safety position. They, they you know, they, I mean, it's understandable that they didn't really play the true freshman to Canberra. Um, David transferred out. Terrell was probably injured. They played Martin, but mm -hmm. apparently not to his satisfaction because he transferred out. Uh, and then they did play Tyler, Tyler Turner, the other true freshman it, the, the, but like, they just didn't have enough of them, you know, sort of the, you know, the problem there. Um, I'm interested to see, you know, what the, the film turns up on Tyler Turner, but like, that's it. That's the only film you're going to have to watch unless I'm curious about this too, because I had seen some people comment on this. I didn't see with my own two eyes, but I'm interested if you saw anything about this, I had seen some reports or some people comment that that guys that I had penciled in um, as cornerbacks were actually being trained up as crossover safeties. And those were the true freshmen, Roderick Pleasant and Dalen Austin, um, in particular, Dalen Austin, because he's like six one. I could definitely see him playing safety. Did you see that at all? I saw Austin and Pleasant in the film. I'm going to have to go back when I actually make the cut up and look at their alignment. There is one clip that I'm really looking forward to putting in where Pleasant is over the slot receiver on a two-point conversion. So I'll check the alignment. And if he's lined up at safety, that'll definitely be noted. I, I Yeah, I'm really curious to see what you come up with for... Um for how Austin and Pleasant play, because like those guys, I mean, they're a true freshmen in 2023. They're super talented. They're super fast. Um, and, uh, and if they got to see the field during garbage time and you've got some tape on, on them and maybe, maybe even more exciting if they were sort of cross training over and playing, you know, not just as outside, cornerbacks but as guys who could play sort of on the inside and and relieve um some of these you know per personnel shortage issues that Oregon's been having on the interior of their secondary like that would be I mean you might break the news of the offseason <laughs> <laughs> Tristan uh, if that were the case
Yeah, well, I'll I'll go back and uh, and double check my notes and the film. I'd be I'd be happy to do that because we talked about one of the purposes of reviewing the garbage time film is to in, in, give us a window into the thinking with off season moves. And it's no secret that Oregon went out and essentially got an entire secondary's worth of players in the transfer yeah. portal. Are all of them going to start over the guys who are already here? We don't know yet, but they were definitely looking for more depth. You know, this is a substantial enough project that you might want to break this up into two articles, an offense and a defensive article. Like I'm, I'm realizing this is maybe like 18 clip compilations worth of, of dudes. And, uh, and yeah, you might want to just break it up into offense and defense, you know, because like, hey, the quarterback and and like, I mean, we we didn't even touch on the, you know, the wider, you know, the receivers are exciting, you know, Kyler Casper, Jury and Dickey, Kenyon Sadiq, people are going to want to, you know, look at those guys, the entire offensive line, uh, you know, that that's worth an article in and of itself. And then the defense, you know, people are, are going to be pretty excited about, you know, seeing some of the potential relief players for the, the, the safety positions. Definitely, you know, as we've talked about guys like, um, you know, Washington, uh, didn't even mention, you know, uh, 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 um, uh, you know, one of my favorite dudes from, from the, uh, uh, the, the 2023 class, uh, uh, green, um, the, the, uh, the, just the, uh, uh, Terrence green, um, uh, I mean, there's there, there's so much exciting film on the defensive side because it's like Dan Laning, like go figure, you know, recruited a bunch of exciting guys in the defense. Like, yeah, man, you, you you've got some work. Like, I keep asking you questions, and you're like, man, there's so much. <laughs> I got so much notes, I can't answer this question. Like, I, <laughs> like you might need to write two articles on this one. All right. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to all of this. It should be pretty good. Um, uh, you got any, uh, any parting words, uh, you want to say about this stuff before we go? Uh, just that, uh, like everyone else, I'm looking forward to the spring game to see if we can get any more insight into what's going to happen football wise. But until then, uh, there's basketball still ongoing. We got tennis back and we got track and field. It's track town USA. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the track team has been, um, uh, competing in indoor uh competitions uh, for obvious reasons they dominated uh the the UW uh competition up in Seattle uh indoors uh it does of course rain in Seattle but it never rains on this podcast <laughs>